You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Uh, my name is Ryan, one of the pastors here at Stonegate, and uh, gosh, I love gathering as a church during the summer as we get to look through the Psalms. Uh, if you're joining us, uh, the reason we do this, and you haven't been with us before, is it gives us an opportunity to just pause and consider uh, the ups and downs, uh, just the emotional reality of what it looks like to go through this world. Uh, the, the Psalms are acquainted with all of the seasons of life, the hard, the good, uh, the difficult, the tragedy, the triumph. Uh, it's all of that. And as I often think about it as a a soundtrack for life. And uh, it is meant to, to evoke and remind us that the Lord is acquainted with what it looks like to go through this human experience. And this morning we get to look at Psalm 67. And Psalm 67, uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. We're going to be there this morning. It's one of my absolute favorite Psalms in the Bible. So I, I feel joy and just privilege that I get to, to preach it. And the thing that, that David, who, who writes this song, uh, is wanting us to see what he's really getting at more than else in this psalm is he's connecting our closeness with God to our purpose in the world. And, and that's why we need this psalm. That's what this psalm is aiming to do in our lives. Because some of us, you know, if we're honest, we haven't necessarily connected our joy in Jesus to God's mission for the world. And so this is a paradigm that Psalm 67 is trying to frame for us, for, to try to create for us. And, and it's, it's a prayer, honestly, it's a heartfelt prayer of David just saying, this is what I, I think of when I think about God and his posture toward the world out there. And to get there, David is going to bring up a concept that probably gets confused and abused as much as any spiritual concept. And that is the idea of blessing of blessing. Uh, we are a culture that uses that word in all sorts of different ways. Everybody is using this word uh, blessing. If you hop on social media, you're going to see hashtags about a blessed life. And it usually is equivalent to something about lots of money or fame or achievement or status or influence along the way. Or maybe you had a southern grandma who said something to you like, bless your heart. <laughs> And she probably meant it in a way that you didn't necessarily like. But that was her using it in a way. It's a context there. Or, or think about this one. When someone sneezes, you say, God bless you. Uh, which actually came about thousands of years ago when people thought their souls might leave their body during a sneeze. And the God bless you was a way to make sure the devil didn't get in and your soul didn't get out. Which kind of ups the ante in stakes for saying, God bless you, doesn't it? Someone's soul's at stake. But in general, all of us, I mean, blessing is really just another way of saying of happy, of content, of significance. And every single one of us, we are on a happiness quest. In fact, Americans, we built it right into our DNA by putting it in the Declaration of Independence. The pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of significance. It's a question that churns beneath the surface of all of our lives. We are hunting for blessing. We're looking for blessing. We are on a quest to try to find meaning and satisfaction and significance. So Psalm 67 is going to speak deeply to that for us this morning, answer some of those big questions. And this psalm tells us what true blessing really is. It's a really simple structure. This psalm is pretty straightforward. So the simple structure we're going to follow today is we're going to look at the true nature of blessing and then the purpose of blessing. So the true nature of blessing and then the purpose of blessing. 
Okay, so if you have your Bible, go ahead and look at verse 1. We're going to start there, and it'll be up on the screen for, for the rest of us to come along together. So verse 1 says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Selah. So the psalmist already is acknowledging a twofold nature of blessing right here. Let's look at each one of them. First is that blessings are gifts from God. When he says bless us, the psalmist is praying about physical, tangible needs and gifts from God. It can be tempting and sometimes easy, and we have to guard against over-spiritualizing this psalm and not realize that the original audience and David would have been praying for physical blessings. Uh, people in this context would have been thinking we are, are reliant, we're dependent on God for good cattle, for healthy families, for successful businesses, for, for the crops to grow, whatever that looks like, there was actual blessing that they needed. They, need God, they needed God to materially provide. For Israel here, this was the way that they survived. Unlike you and me, who we often have fridges full of food, maybe more food than we even need, uh, they meant it when they were looking for just each day's nourishment and sustenance. Uh, that's why Jesus, even in the Lord's Prayer, he commands us and he says, pray, pray, give us this day our daily bread. It's a pray for physical provision, for nourishment and substance. It's a, it's a prayer that would have been right there on the ears and the thoughts of the original audience. And in verse 6 actually confirms this. Look at verse 6. It says, the earth has yielded its increase. God our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Listen, God still does bless us this way, and that's good for us to acknowledge. He gives us friends, and he gives us health, and he gives us families, he gives us job, jobs, he gives us food, he gives us housing and clothing, he provides for us. Uh, James, in the New Testament, has this same idea in mind when he says, every good and perfect gift comes from God. Here's why this is important, and we shouldn't just gloss right over it. When you recognize the good in your life comes from your Father in heaven, you start to relate to him differently, don't you? It's harder to ignore someone who is constantly giving you the things you need to live. Not only has God forgiven you, but he's also given you all that you have and possess. But it doesn't just stop there. That's the first part of blessing that verse 1 wants us to see. But let's look at the second part, the part that, that is altogether going to speak to some of those deeper soul-felt level desires. The second blessing is God is himself the blessing. God is the blessing. Here's where it begins to get down to a soul satisfaction level. Uh, that, that our souls don't just need material things, that you and I are not just animals. We're not just, just caged primal beings with urges and, and appetites that are fleshly, but we also have needs for such things as significance and love and peace and approval and forgiveness. We need those things too, don't we? Our souls are looking to be affirmed, to be known, to be loved. And we need these things. Keep going down in verse 1. This phrase, this is altogether a super significant phrase throughout the scriptures. It says, make your face to shine upon us. This phrase is incredibly significant in the Old Testament. Go with me on just a, a couple minutes of Old Testament theology. Okay, I promise this will be worth it. 
The face of God, uh, the face of God means the relational presence of God. This is different than the, the omnipresence of God, just the idea that God is true everywhere, which is true, and that's true to his character. But this is intimately the face of God before you and with you and present with his children. This is like when you're at a party and even though there's a crowd of people, you're at a house party or a gathering or a banquet, and although there are people everywhere, it's just that one other person and you. They're connected to you. They see you. They're focused on you. There's relational connection that is taking place. Uh, a benediction we do frequently here at Stonegate tips off on this same idea. Numbers chapter 6, verse 24 and 26. It says, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance and give you peace. And I love that as a benediction. I love that so many Sundays we close our service there. And it's a beautiful prayer, right? But honestly, that prayer is a little problematic. Because God's face means his relational presence. And God cannot be present with sin. And we're sinners, aren't we? And the holiness of God cannot be present with sinful people. It's like a blowtorch and tissue paper. They can't coexist. They don't go together. And when you put them together, the fire instantaneously consumes the tissue paper. Well, here's what we need to realize. That Numbers 6 benediction that talks about the face of God shining before you. It was used in Old Testament tabernacle services. And in those tabernacle services, here was the main point as they would gather together for that service. They would offer a sacrifice of atonement. They would place the sins of the people of Israel upon an animal and then sacrifice that animal to atone for the sins of the people so that God would be able to turn his face back toward the people of Israel and live in presence with them. The removal of judgment so that God could draw near and be present. And listen, when you're reading your Bible and you're reading the Old Testament and you see ideas like this, it should set off alarm bells in your mind. This is foreshadowing of Jesus and what he would do. Much of the New Testament is concealed in the Old Testament. And you see these foreshadowings and this is one of them. And, and we see in Jesus, this is, how does Jesus fulfill this? Jesus in God, God would pour out his wrath on Jesus Jesus would take the sins. What does Jesus even say? He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what was spoken about Jesus. And so Jesus takes the sins of the world. And that sacrifice, that atoning sacrifice of Jesus then brings us into a position where we can be before the face of God. Where we get to be connected to God where we get to be known by God. There's no longer a barrier, a separation, but now there's connection. And if you are in Christ, if you're in this room and you are in Christ, you have been adopted by God. You are loved by God. And now the presence of God is fully with you. This is the biggest, most ultimate blessing in the universe. And its implications change everything. Even just think physically. You will never truly die if you are in Christ because Jesus has taken away the sting of death. 
Even if the diagnosis is cancer, even if COVID seems like it's doing its work in the world, even if it seems like there's war and calamity all around, and, and even if you do face death, you will know that there is a resurrected life for you. That this world does not have the final word, but rather you have victory in Jesus. That you will be resurrected with a new body. What does that do? It puts our physical ailments and predicaments and pains in perspective, doesn't it? Or what about security? This sense of, am I going to be okay? Well, if you are in Christ, you're sealed with God forever. He's got you in his grasp. And that gives more security than money or power or status ever could. And then this last one, gosh, this is just... This is so close to my heart. And I, 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 it's, it's what I want us all to think about when we think about the Christian life. You have the smile of God upon you. You have God's smile. You have his approval. You have his justification. And the Father looks at you and you are the apple of his eye. He doesn't see a mess up. He doesn't see someone who's just filled with all sorts of mistakes. He doesn't see someone who's blown it constantly. But rather he sees his child who he loves and adores and cares for. You have the smile of God. Honestly, I think too many of us, we, we kind of walk around with this low-grade impression that God's just tolerating me. Like, yeah, I get it. He had to let me in because I prayed the sinner's prayer. But it's more of a begrudging way. He's like, man, I can't believe that guy got in. Yeah, man, I guess we'll tolerate him. Come on in. But it's not that at all. Like, God's not tolerating you the way you do at a second cousin at a family reunion or your neighbor's pet ferret. But God really likes you. He's into you. You are the apple of his eye. This is what it means for God's face to shine upon you. In shining, there is actually this transformation that's taken place. As you sit before the presence of God, as you sit with God, as you are near to God, it begins to change you from one degree of glory to the next. That You become a new creation in Christ. That the old has gone and the new has come. That his face may shine upon you is an invitation to intimacy, to approval, to love, to joy. All the things that our souls need to thrive. And oftentimes when we can think about like, what does the gospel have to do with my everyday life? I mean, yeah, sure, I'll get to go to heaven when I die. We're missing so much of the implications of what it means to be followers of Jesus. Because the gospel is altogether practical for our daily existences as well. In fact, the gospel intersects in an incredible way into our life. All of a sudden, your failures and your fears and your flaws become fertile ground where grace and security and approval take root and flourish. Not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done. Because of how much he loves you that his face would shine upon you. Do you see what a blessing that is? Do you see how transformative that is? While the world is offering you trinkets, God is offering you treasure, and he is the treasure. It's so easy for our souls to get caught up like in flippant TikTok fads. 
But the fame of God that our souls were meant to feast on is waiting right there for us. This is what God thinks about you, Christian. And that's why this verse even ends with the word Selah. Take a break. Just pause, bask in that, consider that. Uh, it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 60 years or six hours. You need the good news of the gospel just as much today as you have on any day. You need it every day. Uh, Tim Keller, a uh, great pastor and writer, he says the gospel is like hygiene. We need it every day. I mean, right? We need hygiene? Yeah, I mean, hopefully you took, brushed your teeth and took a shower before coming to church. Uh, but that's the same thing. Like, we, we need to remind ourselves of these truths. And that's what it means to be gospel-centered, is that we are gospel-needy, gospel-dependent people that return and feast on the good news that his face has shined upon us and we sit before the risen Lord. And as we do, we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Okay, so we've been blessed materially and we've been blessed by God himself. What are the purposes of these blessings? What are, there's two. There's two purposes I want us to see. Look down at verse 4. The, the purpose of these blessings, one of them is right there in verse 4. It says, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Notice the language that the author uses to describe the response of the nations. He wants them to, to be glad. He wants them to, to sing for joy. The blessings of God, when they're rightly understood, they create joy inside of our hearts. You know, if we've been transformed by God, if we've seen his face, if his face has shined upon us, it transforms us. The Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it like this. It says, man's chief end, the main reason we exist, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is serious business, folks. This is important. We're talking about the most important stuff. Why you're here. Why you exist. Where you will get the most blessing. That's in bringing glory to God. Our enjoyment of him, our enjoyment of God brings us glory. And as we, as we are made glad in the Lord, it leads to a response of joy. Why do we sing worship songs? Uh, just to fill some time in our service? No, of course not. We're singing songs because there's a desire, there's a need to praise, to bring glory to which has made us glad. Something has made us glad and now we need to express praise. This is the natural rhythm of the human heart. C.S. Lewis, in commenting on this psalm, he put it this way, he said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. Do you get that? Do, do you see what he's saying? So it's not enough in some ways just to, to be glad, but actually the gladness is not completed until you've expressed praise and joy. You know, what do you do after a good meal? Do you just sit there stone-faced? Or do you go like, gosh, that was wonderful. Or just imagine if it's your wedding day and you're getting married. 
And, and at the end of your, your, your marriage ceremony, you just go home and watch Wheel of Fortune and eat a Hot Pocket. It's kind of weird behavior, right? Like, you wouldn't do that. What, what do you do at a wedding? I mean, you throw a party. Everyone celebrates. Because the joy is not completed until it's consummated in worship. Or, here's a really zany hypothetical for you. You ready? You guys with me? Let's go on a little bit of a trip. Let's say the Dallas Cowboys made it to the Super Bowl. I know, hard to imagine, but let's just say it happened. Okay? Let's just say they got there. And, miracle of miracles, they won. Now, would you just go like, all right, very nice. All right, let's go rake some leaves. Do my taxes. All right, cool. No, you would celebrate. You, I mean, it, you would be like, this must be a bizarro world. But you would also be excited. You would be like, this is amazing. Because what humans do is we glory in what we love. And what has made your heart glad, you will give praise to. So one of the purposes of these blessings is our joy. And our joy then spilling over into the world around us. You see, friends, what affects us, what affects us, what's effectual in our life, shapes our affections. What affects us shapes our affections. Think of all of the great nonprofits and causes and movements and issues and churches and missions organizations of the 20th century. Almost without exception, every one of them was started by someone who had been affected by a cause and had then shaped their affections. This is what it means to be human. This is part of what we do with those blessings is we, we let our hearts be glad and we sing for joy. And this is not just the nation of Israel. This is the nations. God wants this for all the nations. That word together is all together significant, and it leads into the second purpose. Go back and look at verse 2, and it says, your face is shining upon us, be gracious to us, bless us, remind us, and then it says, so that, basically, that your way may be known to the earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, oh God, let the peoples praise you. That your way. If you're, if you're a grammar nerd in here, this is a purpose clause in the Hebrew. It's meaning to convey to us, to show us that so that because your face has shown upon us, because you've been gracious to us, because you've blessed us, now there's an implication. Those blessings should propel us into going into the world so that all the world would know. They would know that there is a God who wants to be gracious to them, who wants to shine his face upon them, who wants to draw near. And look at that too, that God wants to be known. Have you thought about that? I mean, we live in a world that loves to speculate. But we're not talking about speculation. We have revelation. God has revealed to us who he is and what he is like and what we are to tell the world about our God. And friends, this matters. Theology matters. Our God wants to be known clearly. We don't worship the God of Islam. We don't worship the God of Mormonism. Those are different gods. 
We worship the triune eternal God of the Bible who is revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ who defeated death and resurrected from the grave and ascended into heaven where he rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father to one day return and judge the living and dead and put all the world back to rights. That's who we worship. And the world needs to be made glad in hearing about him. One theologian puts it this way. When describing the church, you and me, and how we are part of this purpose. And it's a bit provocative, but he's trying to awake us to something that's important. He says the church doesn't have a mission. The mission has a church. And there's something true about that. If you're going to read the Bible faithfully, what you begin to see all the way, starting in Genesis 3, is that God is on a redemptive mission to bring his people back to him, to rescue them, to restore them. Genesis 3, where he preaches the very first gospel and says that I'll make a sacrifice, I'll make a substitute. There's a savior coming. And it's foreshadowed throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Even Israel, who just had glimpses of their role in redemptive history, would one day, we would all see and savor that this was leading to Jesus Christ on the cross. You may have also noticed that this uh, verse 1 has shades of a, of a benediction we do here regularly at Stonegate. In fact, we'll do it today. Numbers 6, verse 24 and 26, I, I read a second ago. And this is significant. There's a reason why we actually have this benediction. It's not because we, we forgot how to say goodbye. It's not that we don't know how to do that, but rather we are joining together. We are acknowledging the sacred reality that you and I came in here and, and, and in songs of worship and in hearing the word preached, we are transformed. And now because we've been transformed, because we've been blessed, we are to go out and be a blessing to the world around us. That you and I are being sent. Every single Christian is a missionary. Period. Every Christian is a missionary. God is sending us to our neighborhoods, to our communities, to our families, to our, friends and um, to our friends and family who do not know him. He wants us to be the people that bring them good news. You know, it can be altogether tempting and easy and alluring to kind of get caught up and just kind of this idea of a, of a swamp of sorts. A swamp is like where uh, I've got a bunch of theological content. I'm listening to a bunch of podcasts. I've heard a bunch of good sermons. I've got a great worship playlist. My home group's wonderful. But it's not going anywhere. You're absorbing. You're taking in all of these blessings, but they're not pouring out. And rather than being swamps, we are to be streams. And a stream is, is flowing. As something comes in, it's also going out. It's moving. There's health to it. That as you and I experience blessing, as we are recipients of blessing, as God materially blesses us, as he blesses us with his presence, we then are also going to be a blessing to the world around us. This is a tandem bike. Blessing and mission must go together. And when we separate them, we are in disobedience to what God has called us to give our lives to. I just want to highlight for a second a spiritual muscle that I think has 
kind of atrophied for a lot of people during the pandemic. And that is this idea of evangelism, of, of good newsing the people around you, of sharing good news with the world around you. And I get it. Look, I'm not naive. Uh, it, the, the cultural winds are not in our favor. And we can get very bent out of shape, we can get very dour, we can get very negative about that, or we can realize the tomb's empty. That you're filled with the Spirit. And that if you study church history, it gives you perspective to realize often Christians have been at the margins. And so I get it. Even in the workplace, the marketplace, our neighborhoods, it's harder to get a hearing than ever before. I, I love turning to the book of Acts. Acts 4, you, you should have it bookmarked. One of the best chapters in the Bible. And here's why. Early church had all odds stacked against them. Contrary to popular myth and, and novels that were put out a couple years ago, the church did not get established because of political power. It's not like, hey, they got whisked right in and got to take over Rome. In fact, all of the early church faced oppression, faced opposition, faced violence, faced persecution. There were people being beaten and stoned and having lies said about them and riots were taking place. And you know what they do is that's going on. They, they come together in Acts 4 for a prayer meeting. Now, what would your prayers have sounded like in that moment? Here's what my prayers would have sounded like. God, can you bring some angels and smoke these fools? <laughs> God, how about a vacation? Uh, maybe there's this place called Fiji out there. Can you teleport me there? I, I mean, just something to get out of that. But what do they pray? They just pray for one thing. They pray for boldness. Lord, we'll stay in the fire. We'll stay in the fight. We'll stay in the difficulty. Will you just give us boldness? That when the moment comes, we'll open our mouths, we'll articulate the good news of the gospel. Because we have been blessed, because we've been transformed from one degree of the glory of next by looking into your face, we now want to be a stream of life that flows into other people hearing the good news of who our God is. Uh, at Stonegate, we just try to put this together for a lot of us in what we just call Who's Your One. Every quarter, we're writing down names that we're going to pray for and then take practical steps of how we are going to share the good news of the gospel with them. Because, guys, the stakes are heavy. Eternity, eternity is a long time. And people need good news now more than ever. And so where are you at with that? Are, are you praying for that person, you, that, that, that person that you wrote down on your Who's Your One card? Maybe this week for a lot of us, we need to pick up the phone, make a call, we need to text them, we need to have a coffee, and we need to share the gospel with them. To communicate to them good news. Realizing that the, the reason we've been blessed is so that we can be a blessing to others. You know, one thing I often think we get stalled up on is even just like, yeah, but what if it doesn't work? Well, here's the thing you can dust off your shoulder right now, okay? It's not up to you. It's okay. You're just called to be faithful. You're just called to be faithful. The Lord will do his work. The Lord will show up. He'll go before you. But will you show up? Will you be faithful? Will you share the good news of the gospel with the people around you? Or a lot of folks often feel like, but I don't know everything. Hey, no one knows everything except Jesus. 
And that's okay. What your neighbors need, they don't need you to be like a Greek scholar and a Hebrew scholar and apologetics expert and argue about every issue and hot topic. That's not what they need. They need to hear your story. You know, people more than information are looking for transformation. And if they see transformed lives, that's compelling. And your story gives people something to consider that can compel them to see Jesus clearly in a way they haven't before. And every single one of us, if you're in Christ, you now have a story that's called a testimony. You can testify to what it looked like for you to go from death to life. And you don't have to have all the answers. Sometimes it's like, look, I don't have all the answers, but I do know I was dead in my sin and now I'm alive. That I was lost and now I'm found. That it doesn't mean everything's better. It doesn't mean all my problems went away. That's not what I'm saying. But I do know I'm loved. But I do know there's grace. I do know there's forgiveness. And that's okay what the Lord does with that. But will we be faithful? Will we show up? Will we share good news with the world around us? I would be remiss too to not tease out for a second that clearly this psalm is also wanting us to think about frontier missions. This is, this is the nations. So yes, we want to go locally, but we also want to go globally. That there is a call that God loves the nations. That he wants people from every tribe and tongue and ethnicity and culture and color and creed and country to hear the good news so that they would be glad and then rejoice. And still in our world, there's over 6,693 unreached people groups. Over 3 billion people are still part of what's considered an unreached people group. An unreached people group is people that share a common language but have little to no access to the gospel. And folks, we should realize that, that you and I are recipients of the blessing of frontier missions. I don't know if you know this, but Midlothian's pretty far from Jerusalem, isn't it? <laughs> so that means at some point over the last 2,000 years, Someone went so that the nations would be glad. Someone decided to go so that the nations would be glad. Someone said, I can't think of anything better I can do with my life than to give it to the nations so that they would be glad. Honestly, last night I was just praying. I was like, Lord, there, would, you, would you just maybe stir in one person's heart this morning that they're to pray and consider and explore what it would look like to give their lives to frontier missions. That they would go. And as a church, that we could eagerly support them and encourage them and resource them and get behind them. Church, what would it look like over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years if Stonegate became known as this place where people were going to all the nations throughout all of the world to share good news with all of God's people so that the nations would be glad? Wouldn't that be an amazing story? Can you think of anything better we could do with the next couple decades? William Carey, who many consider to be the father of modern missions, he would go to India and give his life there as he left England and labor hard. He said this. He said, I'll go down the cave if you hold the rope. I'll go down the cave if you hold the rope. And that means every single one of us, we're involved, we're in this together. This is what makes the church so amazing. We really are better together because we're a body. And together, we can go to the nations. Some people will go, some people will give, and all will gain. 
we'll gain joy. We'll gain moments of worship and celebration. And church, we already are holding the rope. I want you to be affirmed, and I want you to know the ways that you are holding the rope right now. Even last year, when we brought Compassion in to partner with us, we sponsored over 460 kids in Guatemala. That's holding the rope. Yeah, that is worth excited. That's celebrating. Check this out. Here's a few other things for you that you need to know about church. This is you holding the rope. But a lot of us, we need to not only hold the rope, but some of us need to go so that we can all gain together for the praise of God's name. We partner with multiple church planters over in India where they've planted over three dozen churches in the last year. Hard to reach, unreached people groups, places. We are supporting and funding, resourcing and praying for the Carols who lead a church over in Kurdish area of Iraq. It's the only open gospel preaching church church in all of the area. We helped support and partner and you as a church gave over $100,000 to one of our missionaries two years ago so that he could go to Southeast Asia and start a community center and a church. You're holding the rope. And you as a church, Stonegate, hear this and feel the smile of God as you do. Last year alone, you gave over $500,000 to hold the rope for people that are going. $500,000 went outside the walls of Stonegate. May, by God's grace, that number be more every year going forward. I, so that the nations may be glad. Okay, let me close with one caution, okay? And it's a bit of an encouragement too. So if we know the purpose of these blessings, if these, the purpose of these blessings is that we would go, that we would share good news, that the reason we've been blessed is so that we can be a blessing, it would stand to reason that there is an, an unpurpose for them, a way that we ought not to use these blessings. And I need to draw out a caution for us about what happens when you divorce blessing from mission. See, without mission, our church goes from a movement to a museum. And gosh, doesn't that sound boring? Who wants to spend their life just being a museum when God has invited us to be part of a movement? To get caught up in this idea of seeing people have their lives and eternities changed. We can never disconnect blessing and mission. They must always go together. You have been blessed to be a blessing. Without blessing, without good news, there is no mission. This is often why folks that are just like, man, I just want to do good for doing good. It's like, okay, that's, that's one way to do it. But really, what, what's the cause of the mission? The reason for the mission is that you and I have been blessed that we have good news to share. But without mission, without mission, if we abandon mission, if we refuse to talk to our neighbors about Jesus, if we refuse to go into frontier mission, blessing just becomes stagnant and indulgent, and you and I become a holy huddle. That's not what the Lord wants for us. That would be disobedience. Look again at verse 6. It says, the earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, has surely blessed us. And church, I would argue that us particularly, this should weigh heavy on us in this consideration. The American church has certainly been blessed with physical prosperity. God gives his people material wealth for the sake of the world's worship. That's why we have wealth in church. We have so much of it as a country. We have more wealth than any people group that have ever existed on this planet. 
He blesses his church with riches for the sake of reaching. He gives us more money than we need so that we can meet the world's greatest need. See, friends, I'm not advocating poverty theology, but what I am saying is that you cannot build bigger barns and also have better blessings. That this world is trying to lure you in to this idea of I need to get and keep and hold on to, that I need to, I need to hoard, I need to conserve. And really Jesus is saying, no, open your hands. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And it's this invitation, will you trust me? Not just trust me with your eternity, but also trust me with your today. That, that, that what is that place when you walk to the Lord, that maybe your hands are a little closed and he's asking you to open them up. You know, that story of the rich young ruler is altogether profound and shaping in our discipleship, in our apprenticeship of Jesus. And here's why. It can be very easy for us to fool ourselves into thinking we have full compliance and obedience to Jesus. And then Jesus knows that last little area you're holding out on. No, I'm not going to give that up. No, Jesus, I won't talk to them about you. No, Jesus, I won't go to the ends of the earth. And Jesus is like, just trust me. Just let it go. If you want to gain your life, you must first lose it. So church, what would it look like if we really became those people, just had big faith, generous faith? Look, even social sciences have proved there is no correlation between having and happiness. You can meet miserable millionaires all day long. I have. But there is a correlation between giving and happiness. That's why Jesus said it's more blessed to give than receive. What I love most about this psalm is that I already know the answer to it. The nations will sing for joy. People from every tribe, nation, and tongue will praise God. Here's how I know. The book of Revelation, John describes this very reality that's coming at the end of days. This is what John says as he looks at the end of times. He says, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and all languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to the Lord who sits on the throne and to the lamb. That's, that's where we're going, church. This life is but a mist. That will be your reality before you know it. And I just think you will have so much more joy if you say, I left it all out on the field. So let's live for that day, okay? Let's give toward that day. Let's die for that day. That we will be joining together in praise and celebration as people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are made glad. Let's pray. God, would you open our hands? That, that place where maybe we feel fear. We don't want to step out. We don't want to trust you. Lord, would you just, would you tell us it's okay? You've got us. For some of us that maybe feel like we've just been hoarding up these blessings. Would, would you just give us that next little step you want us to take?
to be a stream, a stream of life. That you would just give us a sense of just encouragement that today, not tomorrow, but today we wouldn't delay in, in calling that friend, talking to that neighbor, that they would hear good news, that we'd realize so much of our blessing is meant that we can bless others. And Lord, for some of us in this room, maybe the call today is that we would consider going to the nations. We'd see a life given to you, what's done for you, will count for all of eternity. Lord, keep us from living in light of tomorrow and keep us living in light of eternity. Your face has shined upon us. You have been gracious to us. You've blessed us. So now make us a blessing to others. Amen.